listening to the Redfield Arts Audio Podcast. Hello, this is Mark Redfield. The story you are about to hear is called Berenice. This is Edgar Allan Poe's first horror story. It was published in March of 1835. Readers were disturbed by the story and some outraged. Complaints flooded the office of the Southern Literary Messenger. But more so, subscriptions to the Southern Literary Messenger rose. Oh, a word about the pronunciation of the main character. We chose Berenice. There are many variations on pronunciation. Berenice, Berenice. We chose Berenice. In Berenice, Poe easily follows in the tradition of Gothic fiction. Themes that reoccur with Poe are introduced in this first horror story of his. The death of a beautiful woman, premature burial, catalepsy, and of course, madness and monomania. Here is Berenice, performed by Tony Sandeas as recorded before a live audience at Westminster Hall in Baltimore on June 28, 2013. Misery is manifold. The wretchedness of earth is multiform. I have a tale to tell in its own essence rife with horror. I would suppress it were it not a record more of feelings than of facts. My baptismal name is Aegeus. That of my family I will not mention. Our line has been called a race of visionaries and in many striking particulars in the character of the family mansion, in the tapestries of the dormitories, in the gallery of antique paintings, in the fashion of the library chamber, and lastly, in the very peculiar nature of the library's contents, there is more than sufficient evidence to warrant the belief. The recollection of my earliest years are connected with that chamber and with its volumes. Here died my mother. Here was I born. I loitered away my boyhood in books and dissipated my youth in reverie. As the years rolled away, the noon of manhood found me still in the mansion of my father's. It is wonderful, the stagnation there that fell upon the springs of my life. Wonderful how total an inversion took place in the character of my common thoughts. The realities of the world affected me as visions and as visions only while the wild ideas of the land of dreams became, in turn, my everyday existence. Berenice and I were cousins, and we grew up together in my paternal halls, yet differently we grew. 
I of ill health and buried in gloom, she, agile, graceful, and overflowing with energy, hers the ramble on the hillside, mine the studies of the cloister. I, living within my own heart and addicted body and soul to the most intense and painful meditation, she, roaming carelessly through life with no thought of the shadows in her path. Bernice, I call upon her name, Bernice. Then from the gray ruins of memory, a thousand tumultuous recollections are startled at the sound. Vividly is her image before me now, as in the early days of her light-heartedness and joy. Oh, gorgeous yet fantastic beauty. And then, then all is mystery and terror, and a tale which should not be told. Disease. A fatal disease fell upon her frame, and even while I gazed upon her, the spirit of change swept over her, pervading her mind, her habits, and her character, and in a manner the most subtle and terrible, disturbing even the very identity of her person. Alas, the destroyer came and went, and the victim, where was she? I knew her not or knew her no longer as Berenice. Among the numerous train of maladies which affected my cousin was a species of epilepsy, not unfrequently terminating in trance itself. Trance, nearly resembling positive dissolution, and from which her manner of recovery was, in most instances, startlingly abrupt. In the meantime, my own disease, for I have been told that I should call it by no other appellation, my own disease then grew rapidly upon me and aggravated in its symptoms by the immoderate use of opium, assumed finally a monomaniac character of a novel and extraordinary form. This monomania consisted in a morbid irritability of the nerves immediately affecting those properties of the mind in metaphysical science termed the attentive. In my case, the powers of meditation busied and, as it were, buried themselves in the contemplation of even the most common objects of the universe. To muse for long, unwearied hours with my attention riveted to some frivolous device upon the margin or in the topography of a book, to lose myself for an entire night in the watching of a steady flame of a lamp or the embers of a fire, to repeat monotonously some common word until the sound by dint of repetition ceased to convey any idea whatever to the mind, to lose all sense of motion or physical existence in a state of absolute bodily quiescence, long and obstinately persevered in such were a few of my most common vagaries. 
in the lucid intervals of my infirmity. Calamity indeed gave me pain. True to its own character, my disorder reveled in the less important but more startling changes wrought in the physical frame of death and in the singular and most appalling distortion of her personal identity. During the brightest days of her unparalleled beauty, most surely I had never loved her. In the strange anomaly of my existence, feelings with me had never been of the heart, and my passions always were of the mind. Through the gray of the early morning, among the trellised shadows of the forest at noonday and in the silence of my library at night, she had flitted before my eyes and I had seen her not as the living and breathing Berenice, but as the Berenice of a dream, not as a being of the earth, but as an abstraction of such a being, not as a thing to admire, but to analyze, and not as an object of love, but as the object of speculation. And now, now, I shuddered in her presence and grew pale at her approach, yet bitterly lamenting her fallen and desolate condition, I knew that she had loved me long and in an evil moment, I spoke to her of marriage, and at length the period of our nuptials was approaching when, upon an afternoon in the winter of the year, I sat and sat, as I thought, alone in the inner apartment of the library, but uplifting my eyes, there stood before me. Was it my own excited imagination or the misty influence of the atmosphere or the uncertain twilight of the chamber or the gray draperies which fell around her figure that caused it to loom up in so unnatural a degree? I could not tell. She spoke, however, no word, and I, not for worlds, could I have uttered a syllable. An icy chill ran through my frame. A sense of insufferable anxiety oppressed me. I remained for some time breathless and motionless and with my eyes riveted upon her person. Its emaciation was excessive. And not one vestige of the former being lurked in any single line of the contour. My burning glances at length fell upon her face. The forehead was high and very pale and singularly placid, and the once golden hair fell partially over it and overshadowed the hollow temples with ringlets now black as the raven's wing and drawing discordantly in their fantastic character with the reigning melancholy of the countenance. The eyes were lifeless, and I shrunk from their glassy stare to the contemplation of the thin and shrunken lips. 
they parted, and in a smile of peculiar meaning, the teeth of the changed bears disclosed themselves slowly to my view. Would to God that I had never beheld them, or that having done so, I had died. The shutting of a door disturbed me, and looking up, I found that my cousin had departed from the chamber, but from the disordered chamber of my brain had not, alas, departed and would not be driven away the white and ghastly spectrum of the teeth. Not a speck upon their surface, not a shade on their enamel, not a line in their configuration, not an indenture in their edges. I saw them now, even more than I beheld them then. The teeth, the teeth, they were here and there and everywhere and visibly and palpably before me, long, narrow and excessively white with the pale lips writhing about them. Then came the full fury of my monomania, and I struggled in vain against its strange and irresistible influence. In the multiplied objects of the external world, I had no thoughts but for the teeth. All other matters and all different interests became absorbed in their single contemplation. They, they alone were present to the mental eye, and they, in their sole individuality, became the essence of my mental life. I held them in every light. I turned them in every attitude. I surveyed their characteristics. I dwelt upon their peculiarities, I pondered upon their confirmation, I mused upon the alteration in their nature, and shuddered as I assigned to them, in imagination, a sensitive and sentient power. And the evening closed in upon me thus, and then the darkness came, and tarried, and went, and the day again dawned, and the mists of a second night were now gathering around, and still I sat motionless in that solitary room, and still I sat buried in meditation, and still the phantasma of the teach maintained its terrible ascendancy. At length, there broke forcibly in upon my dreams a wild cry as of horror and dismay. I arose hurriedly from my seat and throwing open one of the doors of the library, and there stood out in the antechamber a servant maiden, all in tears. And she told me that Beatrice was seized with an epileptic fit. She had fallen dead in the early morning. Now, at the closing in of the night, the grave was ready for its tenant, and all the preparations for the burial were completed. With a heart full of grief, yet reluctantly and depressed with awe, 
I made my way to the bedchamber of the departed. The room was large and very dark, and at every step within its gloomy precincts, I encountered the paraphernalia of the grave. The coffin, so Emmanuel told me, lay surrounded by the curtains of yonder bed, and in that coffin, he whisperingly assured me, was all that remained of Berenice. Who was it? Ask me. Would I not look upon the corpse? I had seen the lips of no one move, yet the question had been demanded, and the echo of the syllable still lingered in the room. It was impossible to refuse. And with a sense of suffocation, I dragged myself to the side of the bed. Gently, I uplifted the sable draperies of the curtains. They atmosphere was redolent of death. The peculiar smell of the coffin sickened me, and I fancied a deleterious odor was already exhaling from the body. I would have given worlds to escape, to fly from the pernicious influence of mortality, to breathe once again the pure air of the eternal heavens, but I had no longer the power to move. God of heaven, is it possible? Was it indeed the finger of the enshrouded dead that stirred in the white serenade that bound it? Frozen with unutterable awe, I slowly raised my eyes to the countenance of the corpse. The lips were wreathed in a species of smile, and through the enveloping gloom, once again there glared upon me in too palpable reality the white and glistening and ghastly teeth of Berenice. I sprang convulsively from the bed, and uttering no word, rushed forth a maniac from that apartment. I found myself again, sitting in the library, and again sitting there alone. It seemed that I had newly awakened from a confused and exciting dream. I knew that it was now midnight, and I was well aware that since the setting of the sun, Berenice had been interred. But of that dreary period which had intervened, I had no positive, at least no definite comprehension, yet its memory was rife with horror, horror more horrible from being vague. It was a fearful page in the record of my existence, written all over with dim and hideous and unintelligible recollections. I had done a thing. What was it? And the echoes of the chamber answered me, What was it? On the table beside me, burned a lamp, and near it lay a little box of ebony. It was a box of no remarkable character, and I had seen it frequently, it being the property of the family physician. But how came it there upon my table? And why did I shudder in regarding it? 
there came a light tap at the library door, and pale as a tenant of a tomb, a menial entered upon tiptoe. His looks were wild with terror, and he spoke to me in a very low voice. What said he? Some broken sentences I heard. He told me of a wild cry disturbing the silence of the night, of the gathering together of the household of our search in the direction of the sound. And then his tones grew thrillingly distinct as he whispered me of a violated phrase, of a disfigured body discovered upon its margin, a body enshrouded yet still breathing, still palpitating, still alive. Pointed to my garments, they were muddy and clotted with gore. I spoke not, and he took me gently by the hand. But it was indented with the impress of human nails. He directed my attention to some object against the wall, and I looked at it for some minutes. It was a spade. With a shriek, I bounded to the table, I grasped the ebony box that lay upon it, but I could not force it open, and in my tremor it slipped from out my hands and fell heavily and burst into pieces, and from it, with a rattling sound, there rolled out some instruments of dental surgery, intermingled with many white and glistening substances that were scattered to and fro about the floor, intermingled with many white and glistening substances that were scattered to and fro about the floor, intermingled with many white and glistening substances that were scattered to and fro about the floor. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you subscribe. We have many, many things coming up for you. More audio drama, more interviews, and more audio essays on the Redfield Arts Audio Podcasts. From Redfield Arts Audio, available now worldwide on Audible. Jeffrey Combs, Nevermore, An Evening with Edgar Allan Poe, written by Dennis Paoli, 
Directed by Stuart Gordon. Recorded before a live audience. You are here this evening, no doubt, to hear yours truly recite the most popular poem ever written upon these shores. <laughs> For many years, my, my, my stories, my tales, they're more popular than my poetry. Magazines and readership just demanded. Oh, new tale, every issue. Oh, God, do you hear it? Louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more, I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. This house is full of sounds. My name is Roderick Usher. The loudest is your heart. Who's there? Pounding with fear. The softest is the sound of horror. In this house, terror waits for you in every room. No, no, not through that door. Madness, mystery, imagination. You'll find them all in Edgar Allan Poe's Haunted House of Usher.